Full disclosure, I kind of shared this with um, you know, team leaders this morning. Every morning we have a gathering team meeting where we pray, we talk about the Sunday gathering of the service. We have anchors, those are people who serve our servant leaders, and they just, I mean, they, man, they just grind. Um, and so whether it's back there uh, with Canvas and, and really just provide an opportunity for our kids to really grow and understand in Jesus in a, a very fun and engaging way, whether that's through coffee and tea, whether that's through singing, um, whether that's through parking, whether that's through cleanliness. I mean, we just, they just grind. And so first, just man, thank you guys for the grind. Uh, it, is, it is real. Uh, so that's one. But anyway, so like, not anyway, but we had during our Garrett team meeting, I, I said this to them that obviously this is a different circumstance. We were supposed to start the Fatherhood of God uh, series. We're actually going to push that back to next week, um, the Lord permitting. Um, and, and we just said instead of that, we're just going to have um, just a time to just kind of reflect. Now, um, we sent out, uh, I think, a social blast. If you're not following us on social, please do that. Um, and then we, we sent it out via our newsletter. If you're not following us um, in our newsletter, please sign up for that as well. And what we said was that essentially we were going to use uh, Friday evening and Saturday morning to kind of determine what we were going to do as it related to Sunday gathering. Um, and so it wasn't until actually yesterday at the memorial service that we had here, we were like, man, you know, we're looking at the kind of the trajectory of Dorian. He's kind of doing whatever he wants as hurricanes do. Um, but it seems that Sunday is going to be good and clear for us to have service and to gather together. So let's go ahead and have service. Now, here's what that means. Um, for me, and this is also transparency, hopefully not doing the most. The perspective that I have and as pastors that we have and what we try to instill into those that we're training regarding the preaching of God's word is that it's not something that you do on a whim. It's not just something you wake up when they, oh, I got a great idea. I'm just going to start preaching. That's not the way it works. In fact, when you search the scriptures, there's this constant compelling command to study to show yourself approved unto God. You shouldn't be ashamed of it, but you should study to show yourself approved, which means that your handle on the text should be so clear, so compelling, and so confident that when you communicate, people could feel the clarity. They could hear God through your voice, in his word, and they can be compelled to move in faith, which means you don't just get up here and start waxing eloquent. That's what that means. And so whenever we look at series and, and what, what are we going to be preaching through, we're, we're constantly wrestling with, God, what are you saying to us? What would you have for us? And then in light of what you're saying, what would you have for us? Where is that found in the text? And how can we bring it to life through your text, which your words, not ours? That is preaching. If I could continue, oftentimes if you are engaged in a preaching ministry, so you traffic truth, you, you use your words for et cetera, et cetera. People ask you to come, you know, preach. And what they tell you in this weird American professionalization of the faith is you need to have one in your hip pocket, right? Any preacher, Carl, you know, you've heard that before? You have one in your hip pocket, maybe two or three. Now, obviously, been doing this for a minute, so I got about five in my hip pocket. But the thing is, you know, it's different when you are like a hired hand, if you will, still the word of God, and we don't play with the word of God. When you're going out to preach to some conference or another church, it's different because when you leave, 
there's not that same level of responsibility. I'm not shepherding a conference. I'm not shepherding another church. I'm the pastor of the Brook Church. Does that make sense? And so one of the things that I've said, just for my sake, and just this is so you could constantly keep me accountable, is I'm not going to hip pocket my church. You know? Like, he's just like, man, it's just... Well, I didn't study this week. Ah, let me just go through the Rolodex of my MacBook and just grab one and said, now God is speaking. We don't do that here. Now, I also say that to say that I know that there's some traditions in some churches where the way that they approach the word of God is all going to make sense. Where the way that they approach the word of God is that morning, they just get up and like, spirit, speak to me. I need a rhema word, whatever that means. Right? <laughs> And so then they get up there, and it's just like, you didn't, you didn't, you didn't really spend time with Jesus. And you can kind of tell Jesus, like, hey, what'd you do this? Netflix? You know what I mean? Am I lying? Am I lying? Am I lying to anybody? No. So I say that to say that in light of those truths that I don't hip pocket our church, we're never going to, I'm just not going to do that. And we won't allow for anybody who steps into this space from us to just kind of hip pocket that's just not the way that we view the word of God, especially here at the Brook Church. And we don't just like, you know, hey, man, I just kind of have this feeling and maybe gas. I don't really know what it is. I think it's the spirit. And we're just going to let that. This is how we're going to. We just don't do that, that there's a level of authority that's tied not just to the word of God, but to the preacher as he's preaching the word of God. Which means, again, that you have to be studied. You have to be soaking in it. And you have to go from there. I say that to say. There's stuff that I, because I just love Jesus, I love the Bible, so I soak with it and I stay with it. So what I want to do today is invite you to something that I'm just soaking in with, it's particularly this morning, but actually really since we got this building, just soaking kind of with this. However, and here's the however, because this was not on the Rolodex to say we're going to preach from Matthew 14, there's a certain oomph that I'm not going to preach with. Does that make sense? Because I don't think I would be able to do that with integrity. I feel like if I was to do that, it would be more me and less Jesus. And I'm not about that. Can we just, amen? So I just wanted to share that with everybody. In fact, what you're going to see is the flow of our time is really just going to be an invitation to some contemplations I've been having around this text. Now, these contemplations are going to lead to some questions that we may need to explore. Maybe that's going to happen through the course of our time. Probably, I know a few of them. And some of it has going to be questions that you got to explore beyond this time. But these contemplations may also, will, guaranteed, lead to some actions that we need to put into place like tomorrow. You tracking with me? But these are really contemplations and some principles versus this glorious, synthesized, gusto situation, which we hope to unpack regularly as we preach the word of God. And so the theme of this text is this wrestling with faith. It's a very famous one. Even um, as was being read, my heart was stirring. So I'm just going to read it through and I'm just going to roll off some contemplations and we're going we're gonna to engage together. And then it's where I have a Q&A following the service so that we can wrestle with some questions that the text provides for us. Um, and then questions that we may have in general. Let me read it and let's get after it. Um, so Matthew 14, starting in verse 22, it, it starts off like this. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain to pray by himself to pray. 
When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat um, by this time was a long way from the land, uh, beaten by the waves, uh, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, it was very dark outside, in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. Walking on the sea. Uh, but when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. They said, it is a ghost. Casper, are you there? And they cried out in fear. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out, on the boat, out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? O oh, ye of little faith. That's like King James. You know, some scriptures you want to read like in the King. O oh, ye of little faith, why did you not believe? Verse 32. And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. I like that a lot. All right, let me get some water, then we'll, we'll get into it. There's a lot happening here. Matthew 14 is a very beautiful passage, really, in all of the Gospels, um, but particularly in Matthew, where it just seems like some of the most famous scenes in the life of Jesus are like compressed into this one chapter. You have the feeding of the 5,000 followed by this miraculous display of power and authority, Jesus walking on um, water. Um, but one thing that I've just been contemplating here, um, a contemplation I have is regarding the timeliness of God. And so um, in verse 22, it reads like this, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. Verse 27, but immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Uh, Verse 31, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him. Um, And at the end it says, and when they got into the boat, so there's that time when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And, and here's what it has me think about the timeliness of God. All of this is very intentional, right? This is going to come out more later, but in Matthew 8, you have this storm scene again where it's, and I, 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 mean, I want to be sensitive, it's, it's hurricane-esque where there's this raging wind around them. And in Matthew 8, what you see is Jesus speaks to it and it stops. And so the capacity in Christ to speak to a storm and it stops is there and they've experienced it. And we know what's fascinating is this raging storm stopped the second Jesus got in the boat. So he could have stopped it before he got into the boat. Are you tracking with me? And so this is just saturated with intentionality and it's tied to God's timeliness. 
And what you see is God's timeliness is tied to his trustworthiness. And so everything is set up so at the end of this story, they can have faith. That is the, that is the, that is the direction Jesus is taking this story in fact, that's the direction of all of these scenes that we see in Matthew 4, in, Ma in Matthew 14. This happens in Luke, this happens in Mark, this miraculous feeding of the 5,000 that moves to this cementing of the disciples' faith. He is driving towards trustworthiness. And that drive towards trustworthiness is being steered by his timeliness. God's timeliness is inseparable from his trustworthiness. And in light of that, one of the cornerstones of a growing faith is confidence in God's timeliness. Now, that goes both ways. That goes in the way of both waiting on the Lord, right? Like you just wait on somebody. Uh, uh, I think it was probably like a week, a week and a half ago now. A friend of mine, he um, graduated from the police academy, so he's a lawman now. I got a lot of friends that are lost. I'm like, yo, I need your badge number just in case I'm speeding one day. I'm like, I got, I got multiple guys, free me. Uh, but, you know, that, that, amen. but he told us one time to approach his graduation. He's like, man, it starts at 9 a.m. I was like, oh, he's there. Oh, this is awkward. I didn't think he was going to be Praise God. I thought she was like out because of the hurricane. But he told us one time, he's like, show up at 9 a.m. Showed up at 9 a.m. Tell me what time it started. 10.30. Now, of course, this is Miami. We know this, right? We know that Miami time is wicked. It's sin. It disrupts your life. And so this is hard for us in Miami. The concept of timeless is very hard. And thus, this is a grow area for all of us relating to Jesus, if we're Miamian, is that God operates in a timely fashion, but it's his time. And so when we operate in untimely fashions, because it's the air that we're breathing, amen, it just makes it a little bit difficult to engage with God. But one of the cornerstones of a growing faith is trusting, resting, believing, confidence in God's timeliness. So that's just one contemplation. Let me, let me breeze through. There's many more. Verse 23 leads us to the next contemplation. That wasn't a shot at my officer friend. Praise God. Uh, verse 23 says this, and after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. Man, the, the, the frequency of solitude in Jesus's life is astonishing. It's actually, it's actually stunning the regularity and frequency in which he withdraws to engage. Here's what I've been contemplating. Now, again, this is a contemplation I've actually had for a while. It's not fully formed, so it may feel like I'm just talking out loud, which is fine. But here's the contemplation I'm having. Solitude is a declaration of war. And here's why I say that it's for us. We're so busy, and we're constantly dialed in. Like, you know what I mean? That's why I take regular, like, I gotta get out of social, like, you know, it's just, it doesn't, but we're constantly bombarded with information that we don't ever really intentionally pull away. That's solitude. But all the information that we're constantly being bombarded with, the ideas, they make war against us. They make war against our time. They make war against our thoughts. They make war against our feelings and our emotions. And what I mean they make war against us means they fight for us. And so solitude to make space and time and room for Jesus, biblical solitude, is a declaration of war. It's to say, I am going to actively fight 
against the things that are actively fighting against me. And I think Jesus understood this and he modeled it. And he modeled it for us to follow. Now, there's a difference between solitude and isolation. Isolation is I just withdraw with no intention of coming back. I'm off people. And then I may, I may ascribe it to the fact that I'm introverted. But I'm off you. And that's isolation. So I just withdraw and I pull away. Solitude is I withdraw and I pull away, but I do it to recharge so I can get back. Does that make sense? There's a difference. And so solitude is something that we can all have. It's not tied to our temperament. And it is a declaration of war against the very things that war against us. Next contemplation. We're just breezing through. Feels like a, like a corporate Bible study. I like it. Now we're breezing through. Um, verse 26 when the disciples saw him walking on the sea. Now, this is a contemplation I've been having just in general for like our cultural moment, but like this passage really, just, it just punched me in the face. Guys, Jesus walked on water. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, anybody know? You know somebody who walked on water? You know anybody? Okay. Amen. You see? Okay. Jesus walked on water. That's crazy. Like, that's a big deal. Now, here's, here's the concept. Like, so there is, in our day, in our cultural moment, this move to deconstruct. I talked about this a little bit two weeks ago. To deconstruct all things Christianity. But what I'm finding in that deconstruction, what we're doing specifically with Jesus, is we're deconstructing his divinity. And so we are removing the divinity of Jesus and making him just like everybody else. We are reducing him to merely a man. Now, the glory of Jesus is that he was fully God and fully man, but he was fully God. He is fully God. But the deconstruction of the divinity of Jesus, which is the contemplation, how we're constantly doing that, shows up as, you know, I just like these teachings. Yeah, just love people. He loved people authoritatively. When he said, love people, neighbor as yourself, that's coming in September and October, it wasn't this flimsy, good advice. It was, it was, this, it was, a it was this powerful, you must command. What I'm finding is the deconstruction of the divinity of Jesus, the removal of his divinity is also a removal of his authority. And so what happens is I remove the authority of Christ, so I'm not responsible to it. If I could remove his divinity, I'm subsequently removing my responsibility to his authority. And that is our cultural moment right now. No one wants authority over them. I want to be my own boss in all things, whether that's entrepreneurship or my soul. And there's a ton of danger there. But it's just a contemplation. It's like, man, like this text wouldn't have been debated in the first century the way it's debated now. Because they were wrestling primarily with his humanity. How could God be like us? And we're doing the opposite. There's something twisted about our time in history. Let me get to the chunk of this and some more contemplations. It starts in verse 26. Um, read, read, read with me. Um, 26. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, excuse me, 
They were terrified and said, it is a ghost, and they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. Um, Here's a contemplation that I've been having regarding this. The statement was enough to calm them even though the storm was still raging. Now think about that. Still happening all around them. Hurricane force winds all around them. Yet the very act of Peter getting out of the boat mean that he experienced a momentary calm. And the calm that he experienced was not Jesus speaking to the storm saying, stop, chill, relax. It was, take heart, don't be afraid. It is I, now come. That's that's just been doing something to me because it has me thinking about stuff. Are the words of God soothing to my soul? That's what I've really been thinking about. Like, do I have that David-like heart, Psalm 119, like where your, your law is like honey. Like, I just want more. It tastes good on the outside and the inside as it goes down. It's just good. It soothes me. Or do I trivialize them? That's what's had me thinking about. But then here's a principle that I think is powerful, and I think it's often preached, and I think it's fair to say it right now. Sometimes the storm Jesus wants to calm is the one raging inside my soul that I really do have this thought that if I could just remove, replace, fix certain circumstances, then all this turmoil in me will go away. And it's really not the case. Where in fact, the primary regularly is God not trying to remove, tweak circumstance, but speak a word to your soul. And there's 66 books full of them. And there's something that you know very practically. The right word from the right person is revolutionary. This wasn't, you know, some random guy walking like, yeah, take heart in his eye, Casper. No, this was Jesus, Messiah. And you know, there's certain people that tell you stuff and you're like, well, you just flatter. So you really don't mean it, right? You're frivolous with your words. But then there's people who, when they say, you're like, man, that, that, that hit me a little bit di- differently. There's people, when they say stuff to crush you, just like, you don't really matter. I'm up, it's above me. But then it's, when you're in relationship with them, like it just, you really believe that? Doesn't, the right words can be revolutionary in one way or the other. And so from us, we need the right words from God. All right, so next portion and another contemplation. Y'all track with me still? Amen. Um, verse 30 is where I think this has just been. Yeah, verse 30. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. Beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. 
man, I've, I've seen this story. I mean, I, I, not, I don't know how many times. This is probably the first time I think I've preached it, but I've seen it. And I, like, and I, I just hadn't seen this one part of it. And so maybe y'all saw it, which is great, but I didn't see it. But just the proximity of Peter to Jesus is astounding to me. It's, it's astonishing. It's fascinating. Which means Peter was close enough to fall into his arms, right? He was close enough to fall into arms' reach. Now, this I've been contemplating that a, a, a lot. Because think about this, right? Think about how we bash Peter in this. I know, I, you know, especially if you're from a, a reformed view of the scriptures, you just hammer Peter in this particular scene. Peter, you faithless fool, always brash. What was wrong with you, you know? Versus the fact that Peter fighting through the wind, busting him on the face, kept going, right? He, he said, he saw the wind. You can't see, you know that, right? We can't see wind. I don't know if that's, and so, so what that means, what we're supposed to see from that is, he didn't see like, the, like there was like tie-dye in the air, but he saw the effects of the wind, and we know we could see that, right? And so he saw like birds, like, I can't fly in here, right? He saw waves being tossed. So he saw the effects of the wind, and you can't see wind, you can see its effects, but you know what you can do with wind? You could feel wind. And so he felt all of this, all of this, force as he is pressing he felt every single inch and he kept going he went far enough to fall into the arms of Jesus now what's beautiful about that is his endurance to keep going far enough to fall but what I've also been contemplating is just he was far enough to fall into the arms of Jesus well close enough to fall into the arms of Jesus but far enough away where his faith didn't keep him. Which means this, faith is about proximity in my heart, not proximity with my life. I'm saying that to say this, some of us have drug ourselves to church gatherings for the entirety of our lives. If you're Haitian, if you are Latino, you do that because you know what would happen if you did it. So you just drag, it's like in you, you just drag yourself in here, but then you leave and do you know what happens? Nothing. Because this is good and we need these environments, but it's not about being proximate to like just all of us. It's about the proximity of our hearts to God. So you could drag yourself in here and walk out and fail every single day. Because there's a gap between your heart and God's. And Jesus wants us to see that. Jesus wants us to see that. That the faith that he's after closes the gap. So when he says, oh, ye of little faith, King James, or oh, you of little faith, it's not primarily quantity. Because it's really showing up in Matthew. That, that, that word, it's really one word in the Greek. It shows up five times in the New Testament. One in Luke, but the other four times are in Matthew. And every time you see Matthew use it, what's peculiar is why and how he uses it. And it's not necessarily about what you're believing God for. 
But are you believing God? That's the essence of that little faith. Thus, it's not quantitative primarily. It's qualitative. It's tied to God, not the object you're waiting for. God is going to make that make more sense when you get to stuff like Hebrews, that there's people who had faith, but they didn't receive the object of their faith. Yet he still says, you should follow them. He commends them. Their faith was good and pure because they believed God and they drew near. And so faith is about proximity of my heart and not just the proximity of my life. And the goal and gain of faith, this is not a contemplation. This is a principle. This is authoritative. The goal and gain of faith isn't just affirmation. It's adoration. The story ends with worship. The story ends with like, man, you know, Next time, I'm not going to, you know, look at the waves. I'm going to fix my eyes on Jesus, which is a good principle, which is usually how we preach this, right? And that's fair. Somebody, I'm not going to do it that way. That's fair. The story ends with worship, a realization that there is something qualitatively different between this guy and me. And because there's something qualitatively different between Jesus and me, I need to relate to him accordingly. And what's the relationship I should have with him that accords to the qualitative difference? It's worship. It's a comprehensive saying that my life is yours, worship. It is the posture of my heart tied to the thoughts in my mind showing up in the actions of my hand that say you're worthy. It's worship that the goal and gain of faith isn't just I'm more affirmed in the things I believe, which is good. Luke wrote the entire gospel in the book of Acts so that Theophilus can have certainty on the things he believes. It's good. But the primary goal isn't affirmation, it's adoration. Why do you want more faith? Right? Because I know we all, if you're a believer, like I just need more faith. That's kind of what you say often. I just need more faith. But why? Is it for worship? Because that's why Jesus wants you to have more faith. That's why his timeliness is such in your life, in my life, for worship. And so, in closing, I just want us to think about that. <laughs> I'm so serious. I just want us to think about that. Is, it, is, is the gain of faith, for me, worship, adoration? Or is it just objects? And to read ourselves into this story and see how God can work in our lives. How baby steps are pretty beautiful. He got out this boat and he kept going. But how you could also be close enough to, like, I mean, fall into the arms of God, but far enough away because of your faithlessness. I just want us to think about those things. And so, would you pray with me that God would just... Have us just think about Matthew 14 a little differently today. Maybe as we're hunkering down together, that that would just be a topic of our conversation. And maybe you could have some cool contemplations around the text as well. And then just send them or post them on social and we'll, we'll all um, worship the Lord together. Uh, Jesus, thank you. Um, thank you that your word is mighty. Man, that you, that you oh, thank you. Thank you that your word is mighty, that you would give us such a profound anchoring for the soul, seeing how you just weather 
ah, pain and suffering and struggle to come close. That you, you started walking in the midst of this storm towards them. And for that, we say thank you. I just pray that you would just grab our minds and our imaginations today regarding your word and who you are beyond this moment. And we would just think well. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Um, we're getting ready to enter into a time of communion. And uh, it was a contemplation I, I, I didn't say, but I, I think it's safe to use this as a lead into communion. It's often when we see this story, you know, and it's Peter and Jesus walking on water, we'll have an imbalance of who we're going to emphasize. Are we going to emphasize Peter? Are we going to emphasize Jesus? But one of the fascinating things that just, you know, hit me is, and I kind of prayed it, was think about this. In the same way Peter was having to endure what he saw from the wind and what he felt from the wind, Jesus did as well, right? Like, so the same wind that's brushing and cutting Peter, because you know, like, 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 like raging wind is like sharp. It's like a knife, so it slices. The same wind that is cutting Peter is cutting Jesus. Yet Jesus is enduring for the sake of Peter's faith. Jesus is enduring for the sake of our faith. And when we have communion, we're reminded of that, that Jesus endured for the sake of us, not despising a cross and its shame, but embracing it, clinging to it, dying because of the joy that was set before him, which was relationship because of our faith. So as we come down with the elements, you could go ahead and start coming down. And we just remember, like, like Jesus is enduring for you. And I'm not saying that to say, man, Jesus is enduring for you, so you should endure for him. That's not why I'm saying that. Jesus is enduring for you, so you should enjoy his endurance. Enjoy what he's done this moment as we celebrate together.